amen to our brother's comment that you're singing well and with some depleted numbers um, shows good hearts. Amen. Men, I think we carried it on tonight, but the ladies are giving you a run for it, so let's keep in earnest. Jonah chapter 3 this evening. Continuing our studies in this prophet among the minor prophets. And as we have suggested along the way, Jonah is a prophet tucked in the middle of the rest of these books, the rest of these other ministries that has as much to say to us, I think has as much to say about us as he does the Lord's dealings with his own time and circumstances because Jonah was a good man but a man that struggled in his service struggled we might say with the providence of God and perhaps I don't think ironically is the best word perhaps it is very much on purpose uh, a prophecy that gives us much truth with regard to the sovereignty of God. I mean, it is in this book that we find that phrase, salvation is of the Lord. And so let us continue and ask for grace and gleaning from the story of this prophet. I want us to read together tonight the third chapter. So Jonah chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God, yea, let them turn every one from his evil way, and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent, and turn away from his fierce anger, that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. And he did it not. Amen. Again, we trust the Lord to bless the public reading of his inspired word. Do bow again with me and let's unite our hearts in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we have something of the echo of McShane's hymn and testimony in our ears. Lord, let us know something of an echo of that in our hearts. A desire to love you with an unsinning heart.
a desire, having emerged through the clouds, sometimes deep darkness of difficulties and circumstances in this life, to emerge, taken up by your word and spirit, that we might be able to encourage other doubting saints. Lord, give us to think and sing something of the mercies and grace that already belong to us, anticipating that day of the fullness of blessing, a day in which, though now already we are the sons of God, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Lord, if it is that ultimate, final, full sight of Christ that you use to change us finally into His image and glorification, Lord, certainly it is something of seeing more of Christ now that you use in our sanctification to bring us more along the way in our pilgrim journey. Well, Lord, do something of that even tonight as we again turn to this small, obscure book in the Old Testament Scriptures, this wonderful story of the adventure, as it were, of this man swallowed by a fish. And yet how much more there is to the story. So bless us tonight again as we open your word. We ask it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. As we come tonight again to look at this little prophecy of Jonah, we're mindful that up to this point in our studies, we have seen a disobedient prophet. But might underscore again here, not a worldly man, not a man marred by the sins of the age, as it were, as we considered this morning, a godly man, but a man who ran from the command of God. A man, I believe, who struggled to understand. A man who had different thoughts about what God's purposes should be in his generation. Of how God should work to meet those ends in his generation. And it just didn't seem to fit with Jonah's expectation of what needed to be done in his day. That he be sent to the Ninevites and preach to them. We'll see remarkably and sadly in chapter 4, Jonah foresaw God's mercy. And he states that as his reason for his initial disobedience. I say that indeed is remarkable. But Jonah, and we've mentioned already just the the beautiful parallelisms within the book. Chapter 1 is his call and his disobedience, his running from the call. Chapter 2 is his prayer in the midst of the fish, his confession, his change of heart. Chapter 3 is the call reissued to the prophet, and we might say the prophet, as we'll see in a moment, that didn't deserve to have another call issued to him. But he now hears the call and he obeys and goes to Nineveh. And then we come to the fourth chapter and we find Jonah in prayer yet again. 
But this time, instead of a prayer of confession, it's, it's a prayer of complaint. And we find the Lord needing to wrestle with the heart and mind of this prophet yet again. So, we anticipate there's yet another low point for Jonah in this prophecy. But in between his prayer of chapter 2 and his prayer of chapter 4 is the remarkable history of chapter 3. And so I want us tonight in just really a few brief moments to consider something of God's grace. And it is God's grace indeed toward Jonah as well as God's grace toward Nineveh. Indeed, God's grace toward Jonah precedes His grace toward Nineveh. So, firstly tonight, that grace toward Jonah. I trust that when we read Jonah, we're impressed with the power and majesty of God. When we come to pause and consider that the God of all the earth, Jonah's God, is not a God to be trifled with. And that part of the story, the storm, the struggle with the sailors and their own hearts as to what to do, Jonah being cast into the sea and the sea immediately becoming calm and the soldiers, or the sailors rather, fear. They cry out to Jonah's God. These heathen from various places seem to have been brought into contact with the true God through a prophet who was for a season out of touch. And God blessed him in different ways. But Jonah here comes, and I say as an example to us, of the grace of God toward his own people. It is remarkable to read, as you read through the prophets, we see their call. Some of them were called to remarkably difficult ministries, and they knew this straight up. Jeremiah, the lengthiest of the major prophets, the longest of the long prophets, who had a lengthy ministry, was told at the beginning of his ministry, the people are going to be hard. They're not going to listen to you. You're going to have to go anyway. And Jeremiah is one. We have sections of his prophecy that we use the word we've used tonight already of chapter 4. Jeremiah's complaints. He struggled with God's providence. He struggled with God's purpose for him. He at one point was ready to cash it in. Lord, I'm done. I'm not preaching anymore. But he said, your word was in my heart as a burning fire. I was weary with holding in. And so for all the struggles and everything that Jeremiah was given to anticipate, he was nonetheless an obedient prophet and went forth faithfully and fulfilled the ministry that God gave him to do. Jonah didn't pass that test. God didn't tell Jonah, at least for our understanding in the story that's revealed to us, things are going to be hard for you. Nobody's going to listen to you. You're going to be an outcast. There's going to be a credible case that can be made for your treasonous treatment of the nation. You're going to be cast into a pit and 
fed with bread and water and bread of affliction and all of the above during the siege. Jonah didn't have those predictions of hardship. He was just told to do something that he didn't understand. And he chose not to do it. And so I say what a remarkable illustration of the grace of God that God visited Jonah. God visited the fish to deliver Jonah to the shoreline. And God came again to Jonah not to say, Jonah, I've spared your life, but your, your ministry's over. No, he repeats his word the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And Jonah obeys. There's reverence now. We see in Jonah's prayer, we saw in that second chapter just almost a rapid-fire rehearsing of the Psalms and his faithful understanding of who God is and who He is. And so Jonah now is brought back into God's service. I say it's a testimony of the grace of God. You think about what is fresh in Jonah's own experience. There's a fresh sense of sin. There's a fresh sense of sins forgiven. That's a, a wonderful place for the preacher of the gospel to be. A fresh sense of sins forgiven. I love that phrase we so often sing at the close of our seasons around the communion table. Bonner's words that we would hear taste afresh the calm of sins forgiven. I don't know the Hebrew word for calm. I don't know how to check and see if it occurs in Jonah. But I would think Jonah's experience at this point in the opening of chapter 3 as God again visits him and says, go and preach. There was a calm that descended upon him that was quite different from the circumstances we find him in at the close of chapter 1. But in many ways, this isn't the isolated territory of a disobedient, wayward prophet. It's really true of any prophet. Isaiah, exemplary, preeminent among the Old Testament prophets. If we are called upon to go to the most specific, full references of the coming of Christ in the Old Testament, Isaiah is where we turn. I haven't taken the time or the attention through our studies in Romans. I've thought many times over the years, instead of doing a series through Romans, to do a series from Romans based on Paul's quotations of Isaiah in Romans. There are many. But when God called Isaiah to the ministry, Isaiah 6 where we find that threefold refrain, holy, holy, holy. We find God telling Isaiah of the difficulties of the people not hearing, of their hearts being hardened, their eyes being shut. That's one of the most repeated 
portions of the Old Testament within the New Testament scriptures. But what does Isaiah say? He says, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I remember hearing Sinclair Ferguson one time, I can't remember the context, but he was speaking of Isaiah. And he said something on the order of Isaiah's lips had to be among the most pure, the most God-centered, the most scripturally focused lips in the whole city of Jerusalem. And yet he's confessing that his lips are unclean. He's confessing that he is a man of unclean lips. And so when Isaiah preaches to an Israel that doesn't want to hear, he preaches as one who has himself experienced forgiveness. And he preaches to them the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. And so Jonah has a great position from which to minister. He's a recipient of the grace of God. And so we see God's grace toward Jonah. But come with me secondly and consider what is on the surface, obviously, of this third chapter is God's grace toward Nineveh. The grace of God in restoring Jonah to office is only surpassed in the story, if you will, by God's grace and mercy in sparing Nineveh. You read through the account, Jonah's sermon. I forget, Dr. Barrett repeated this a couple of times, how many words Jonah's sermon was in Hebrew. I'm embarrassed to have forgotten that from our brother, but... There's a few words. And yet what a mighty thing God did. We have to pause. This is something we have to do in several places in the Old Testament Scriptures to deal with a little point of theology that arises. We read reference here of God repenting. Well, we have to look at that from two perspectives. Number one, obviously it's not a repentance in the way that we use the term repentance and it's applied to ourselves because for us, sin is involved and we're repenting of and turning from sins. Well, that's obviously not true of God. But even when we understand repentance in the more general sense of turning from one thing to another, well, how does that land with our understanding of the sovereignty of God? Well, I think it is one of those occasions as we look at the scriptures where God condescends to our understanding. Theologians speak of things called anthropomorphisms, things that are true of us that are not literally true of God, but yet God speaks to us in that way. God's hand isn't shortened that it cannot save. Well, God's a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He doesn't have hands Well, here is an anthropomorphism. God is seen from our perspective, certainly from Nineveh's perspective, to have changed his mind. And yet we know, ultimately, God's eternal purpose is one mind, one all-encompassing eternal decree, 
in which God knew what was going to happen and what he was going to do or not do with Nineveh. Now the real change isn't a change in the mind and heart of God. The change is in the Ninevites. God uses his prophet in a pronouncement of a just and worthy punishment for them. But they repent. It is remarkable as we see the report of this penitence. Nineveh was a great city. Nineveh was a wicked city. And yet, at this preaching of this foreign prophet, how easy to despise him. How easy to not take him seriously. How easy to tell your people. He's just one of those Jews. He's just one of those people that talks about Jehovah. Just ignore it. I mean, Israel is in no place at this point to command a boatload of respect and fear among the nations. But something happens. The Ninevites listen. Something moves them to see truth in what the prophet says. Something leads them, as we read in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. Hugh Martin, that I've said I'm liberally stealing from in our meditations on Jonah. If you don't have Hugh Martin's commentary from the Geneva series on Jonah, it's not a commentary in the modern technical sense of verse by verse and parsing all the words. It's more a theological commentary. I don't think it's just a compilation of sermons, but doubtless they were preached. But he reminds us that faith can be moved by and from different principles. Faith can be moved by love. Faith, we read, which worketh by love. Faith can be moved by grief. Hugh Martin draws the example of Israel itself. They will look on him whom they've pierced. Think of the grief described in Isaiah 53 and Israel's future penitential confession. But faith can also be moved by fear. We read in Scripture of those that have fled for refuge. We read in Scripture of knowing the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. It is true that fear is a lower motive than love. But it's better than a complete insensitivity to the Word of God. The Ninevites are moved by fear. Well, we're not told the motive. We're just told they believed. They were moved to faith. I saw a bumper sticker some years ago. I don't recall ever sharing this story with you. If I haven't, well, maybe it'll start chronicling some of the dad joke stories 
This one was actually from my dad, who was really good at dad jokes and repeating stories. But he was a, a fan of some of the old strict Baptists in his reading. And he got a, he read a lot of old stuff, but he got a contemporary periodical for a long time. This is some decades ago now. But in one of the articles, I think the whole article had been written by a strict Baptist minister. It was on Gobabs. I'm going to try and get the acrostic right. I might not have pronounced that correctly. But what it stood for was the God of billboards and bumper stickers. So that would be Gobabs. That was an idol he was writing against. Well, I've seen bumper stickers that, uh, yeah, they... They had a lot to be desired. And one I recall seeing said this, God is not mad at you. He's not even in a bad mood. You know, that's, that's not how Paul opened Romans, is it? He opened Romans by saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So I think the old strict Baptist, uh, well, this bumper sticker would have come under his category and under his condemnation. Scripture speaks about God being angry at the wicked every day. We even have to wrestle with the accuracy of our speech when we talk about God loving the sinner and hating the sin. I think I understand something of a gospel sentiment in that. I mean, God so loved us while we were yet sinners. But to try and remove from the impenitent sinner the reality that God is angry with the wicked every day. That he is, as we were before we were converted, children of wrath. The Ninevites were persuaded that the wrath of God was real. That the wrath of God was deserved. And they were penitent. Commentators wrestle with Ascribing to the Ninevites a genuine, should we say, gospel repentance and spiritual conversion. Or if it was just a, a little season of fear where they turned over a new leaf and God postponed their judgment. We will read in another minor prophet of Jonah's ultimate judgment and destruction by the hand of God. But I don't think we're forced to the conclusion that there wasn't spiritual reality here. Again, we can't speak with inspired authority. We might say there's some question because how quickly the city reverted back to its sinfulness and then ultimately was judged. But yet is the sin of a coming generation, an indication of the lack of reality of spiritual conversion in a previous generation? 
They can be a commentary on testimony. There is a very sobering portion of the Old Testament history that I think of often and I would put before you young people, young parents, aspiring parents. You look at the story of Lot, a righteous man, a saved man. But he made some choices that he shouldn't have made. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. He was content to dwell among them. Not just his tent ultimately in the city. And apparently a man of some consequence in the city. And we know the story. God's purpose to destroy Sodom. Remarkably not sending a Jonah to Sodom as he did to Nineveh. But Abraham prays. He prays earnestly. He wrestles with God. He tweaks the numbers. We know the story. And there aren't enough righteous souls even with the ten for Sodom to be spared. But he sends his messengers to rescue Lot. And we read the story of his daughters in the home. The, the amazing story of Lot's conversation with the men that pressed upon the door of the house regarding these unwed daughters, a staggering circumstance. But the, the part that to me is almost the most grieving is when Lot went to his married daughters' homes and spoke to them and to their husbands <coughs> The phrase, he seemed unto them as one that mocked. Here was a man that knew God. A man that was converted. A man that God had mercy on in the circumstance to bring him out before the city was destroyed. And we read in the New Testament, again, almost that unexpected commentary that he was a just man. But he had lost his testimony in such a way that when he went to his adult children, they didn't take him seriously. And I say that's a sobering comment on living a consistent, godly life before our children. To let them see spiritual reality and not just be sent to church to hear about it or just hear about it from us, but to see it. Well, it may be that even the young generation of the Ninevites is unpersuaded by the change of heart and parents they've seen previously live in such an ungodly way. Again, we're just rambling on with potential scenarios and that which is not revealed to us. But I just say it's not impossible that a generation of the Ninevites in mass is converted and yet in time shortly to follow the city is ripe for judgment again. God's grace to Jonah and God's grace to Nineveh. The Ninevites had hope. 
Jonah's sermon was yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And yet they repent. A warning, they say, has been given to us. We might recognize no warning is required. God is not under any obligation. The only obligation that God is under since the fall of man, since that breach of the first covenant, was to consign covenant breakers to hell. Everything short of that and instead of that is part of another gospel covenant. But here, the Ninevites in hearing of judgment, in understanding and sensing the warning here, and maybe something about Jonah himself, we will look a little bit later at the things that are used to describe Jonah in the New Testament. One of them is that he was assigned to the Ninevites. Maybe something of the mercy he'd experienced encouraged them to think his God is a merciful God. And they even make the statement, the king of the Ninevites, verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and repent, turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. There's hope within them. I'm reminded in reading this of David's prayer. You recall his affair and immorality with Bathsheba? God's chastening and through the prophet telling him that the child born of this will will die. And David gives himself to earnest prayer. It's a remarkable part of the story. The servants, they come to David and they almost can't bear to tell him the news. They see how wrecked he is waiting and praying. And he can tell by their whispers and their reticence to speak that it's happened. And he gets up and he washes himself and he goes and eats. And they're amazed. The child is still alive. You're you're fasting. You're pouring your heart out. You're miserable. And now the child dies and you're, you're good. And he gives such a gospel word. When the child was yet alive... There's hope. Who can tell if God will not do this? Well, in that case, obviously the Lord fulfilled His path of chastening. But in this case, Jonah's just preached judgment's coming. The Ninevites, led by a penitent king, who can tell? And you talk about a testimony of grace. I mean, here you've got the undeserving, maybe better, the deserving of wrath on display. They don't even have any former laurels to rest on. Any previous seasons of knowing God. It's a wicked, sinful, Immoral, cruel, violent city. And yet, God moves them to ask of Him 
and He forgives. Who knows? Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? And God does turn. Rather, God turns them. And the punishment doesn't come. In a book that is, can we say, filled with ups and downs, perplexities and struggles of heart, and Jonah's case in particular, what a testimony of the gospel. What a window through which to view the grace of God. Mercy upon the undeserving. Penitence. Changed hearts where we would least expect it. That might be an impetus for us to preach the gospel in our generation. That there may be some, that there may be many that find mercy where we would least expect it. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we tonight ask again that you might with the living word, Lord, in this rainy Sunday evening, Lord, a Sunday quite unlike some of the seasons we've recently considered, days of revival where almost inexplicably whole towns were moved to gather at the church to hear the preaching of the gospel. No billboards, no appeals, no major campaign organized and advertised. Just hearts that were suddenly searching. Well, Lord, we haven't seen that in this place tonight, and yet, might there be a, even a small word at an appropriate time for even a single soul that we might know and glean something more of the God of heaven. And so prosper your word to us. Lord, may all that we have heard as we've gathered this Sabbath day, those familiar words we've read and considered this morning, Lord, refresh our understanding of a world system that is antagonistic to our God and bent on its own misery. And that we might instead, by the renewing of our minds, be transformed and prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So bless your word to us. Take us to our home safely. Lord, in this coming week, prosper us in our duties May we be as lights shining in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. May the beauty of Christ be seen in us. May our faith increase, even in troubled times. And we ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.